2: This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than two hundred thousand Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a twenty-year warranty, and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit Douglas.ca/CanadaLand to claim this offer. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope.
1: Welcome to Shortcuts. Jesse Brown is away this week, and I am Erica Eiffel sitting in for Jesse. Today, our guest is Nicholas Keung, immigration reporter for the toronto star welcome nicholas
0: hi thanks for having me erica how are you doing?
1: good how are you i know you've been busy lately today on the show canada creates more pathways to permanent residency for refugees as other refugees sleep in the streets and the bank of canada finally gets inflation where it wants it so are we out of the clear no not at all This is Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Scott Miles, Janet Rose Wien, Kenzie Nemitz, Joey Morrow, Roz Gunn, Sean Farrell, Jacqueline Tomlinson, and Sasha. Hi, I'm Sasha from Montreal, and I support Canada
0: Land, mainly because of shows like Commons and Thunder Bay, and also because I realized I knew way more about what was going on in the States than here at home. So thank you
1: for all your great work, and merci pour
0: There are millions of people around the world right now who are thinking of Canada with dreams of a better life. But for some refugees in Canada's biggest city, the reality has been very different than what they expected. They're here... But homeless. And
2: there are people who have been camped out in front of a homeless shelter because the shelter is full. Trudeau got what he wanted when he showed up at the airport welcoming refugees to Canada. He's moved on. This is a serious problem in need of a hardcore solution. A group
0: of asylum seekers forced to sleep on Toronto streets spent their first night with a roof over their heads after private volunteer groups intervened. Today, the federal government provided a financial boost, but it still falls
1: short. So, Nicholas. 129 Peter Street. For about a month, asylum seekers were sleeping on the sidewalk in Toronto, outside of 129 Peter Street, Toronto's downtown shelter referral centre. What's going on here?
0: Yeah, um, there was obviously a change of policy by the city of Toronto in terms of their intake of refugees and asylum seekers in the city, According to a memo that we received, we find out that, you know, they're actually having issues with in terms of who's paying for the shelter spaces for refugees arriving in Canada. We all know that immigration is a federal jurisdiction, but it's the cities, municipalities, they're responsible for running the shelters. And we know that there has been an increasing number of asylum seekers arriving in the city and they're they're running out of beds right now. I think, you know, about one-third of the shelter beds actually taken by asylum seekers and refugees in the city. So we're seeing some bickering between the city and the federal officials as to, you know, we're not taking them in. Go and talk to the federal government. And in between, it's the refugees and the asylum seekers being caught between and they have nowhere to go and they are stuck and they're camping outside this shelter referral center run by the city of Toronto.
1: What was the policy before the change, which took effect on June 1st, versus the policy after the change?
0: The city of Toronto actually has a policy of taking in whoever in need uh, for uh, shelter, uh, regardless of immigration status. And that's been the policies. I don't think that has changed. But essentially, you know, they are telling someone who is a refugee, when they arrive at the shelter, they would refer them immediately to I believe it was Services Canada to make arrangements, but, you know, they don't run shelters. So they pay for shelter spaces like in hotels for asylum seekers, but they don't directly run those shelters.
1: So was this a way for the city to get more money from the federal government?
0: Yeah, definitely. In a way, the situation is not new because I'm sure you're aware of the arrivals of asylum seekers from the U.S., you know, through Roxham Road in Quebec, coming through the U.S., arriving in different cities. But in the past, the federal government actually has worked with provinces and municipalities to set up hotels in different places to accommodate the asylum seekers, but you know, as we you know you know safe third country agreement, there were some changes made early this year in March, and the border essentially is closed to asylum seekers from south of the border. And I think that the thinking was because now we plug that quote unquote loophole for asylum seekers to arrive in Canada, so there's may not be as much need to fund interim housing for asylum seekers. So my understanding was the interim housing funding program actually expired. And I think no one expected the surge because, you know, if you looked at the numbers of asylum seekers in Canada, even though those coming through the U.S. land border has declined but the last few months since the beginning of the year, there's actually has been a surge of asylum seekers arriving by air. We don't know why, but that was something that we did not expect. Instead of seeing a Real decline in the number of claims, we actually, you know, still as high as before.
1: I've always had a problem with the way this government applies immigration to get their most quote unquote desirable people, which has been the history of the Canadian immigration system, as I'm sure you could tell us. At the same time, however, there is a request from the General Government Committee to amend the non competitive blanket contract issued to the Red Cross for the provision of emergency services including emergency lodging staff and volunteers etc for Ukrainian arrivals needing emergency shelter and I think this is the problem that I personally have is not who gets more because I think that's a dangerous road to go down but how the system has been set up to create winners and losers. And the losers end up getting what I would say used as political pawns for more funding, for example. To me, it's akin to, do you remember when DeSantis and Florida governor and Texas governor Gregory Abbott Sent busloads of migrants up to like Kamala Harris's district or right. something like that, or to Washington to use them as political pawns to say, hey, you take care of them. I feel that it's the Canadian version of that here. Now you can assuage me of all those because <laughs> I'm just cynical. <laughs> you know,
0: uh, I hear you. I feel there's always this perception of who real refugees should look like almost like there's a mold. And I think, you know, as you said, historically, it's almost like we have this ranking system of, you know, who's worthier to come to Canada, who's less worthy to be welcomed to Canada. And if we look at the last, maybe since 2015, or if we can even go further back to the 70s, when Canada opened the doors to the Vietnamese Bo people, and then there's the, the Syrians in 2015, and then, you know, the Afghans in 2021. You know, I've heard a lot of criticisms about how Canada treated different refugees differently based on their race and ethnicity and skin color. You know, there have been a lot of debates over why we welcome the Ukrainians with open arms, but in the meantime we're giving the Afghans and some of the the Syrians a tough time in settling in Canada. Special immigration measures were meant for people like them, people who had helped the Canadian government. But for 24 who applied to come to Canada, most have not received decisions on their cases. Neither has a former embassy security guard. Now they're suing Ottawa. Certainly, I think the circumstances are a little bit different. And also, the if you look at the global response to those crises, was a bit different. But I think at the end of the day, there was some presumption about how these groups, different groups, could potentially benefit Canada. There was the belief that maybe, you know, the Ukrainians, they're better educated. We know there are a lot of, you know, IT experts and specialists, highly educated Ukrainians, right? so we could utilize those skills, you know, in our economy. And yet, if you look at the Syrians and the Afghans, you know, you know, they usually come with large families. They may have a more difficult time to integrate. I think all those factors, you know, would play in into those decision-making. I think it comes down to the control of our borders or the perceived control Canada has on who we let in. I think that's a very important consideration. For example, we like to have the ability to decide who we want to be allowed into Canada for the Ukrainians for example we have the power to decide like you know okay we let these people in it's in our control but asylum seekers they just arrive at the border and i think there's a different standard when we treat asylum seekers who just arrive and make a claim for protection in Canada and in this case you know the group you know in front of 129 Peter Street these are the people that just arrive and make a claim, and there's more suspicion about, you know, are they real? Are they really at risk? Are they really being persecuted? There are a lot of doubts, you know, in terms of legitimacy. I'm sure you've seen some of the social media posting. I've seen comments, criticism saying that, you know, these are young, adult, male. Why did they need our support? Because, you know, they should be able to, you know, survive on their own. Ah, ah. Almost like a hierarchy of how we perceive an asylum seeker versus someone we handpick to resettle to Canada.
1: Absolutely. And I was just going to interject there that a lot of the perceptions of people from other countries is what is intricate and integrated into these decisions. A lot of these are based on biases and fears. If you remember when the whole single Syrian men thing came from a few men in Germany being accused of, of sexual assault against German white women. Remember that? Yeah, I Around
0: remember that. Around
1: Christmas. And so then you get this, this narrative coming out that single Syrian men, and let's expand it to single Arab men, are to be feared. And then that works its way into policy, and who is perceived as appropriate for coming to Canada. And the way we perceive, say, single Syrian men to single Ukrainian men are different. So let's compare it to this story.: The federal government has now announced a new permanent residency program for displaced Ukrainians living in Canada. so far. The so after the Russian invasion. Canada created an emergency visa for Ukrainians. Applications were closed on Saturday. So far, over 1.1 million people applied and 800,000 visas were approved. About 166,000 people have come to Canada so far. So on Saturday, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser announced a new pathway to permanent residency for Ukrainians fleeing violence. The new rules are you must be in Canada because you're fleeing aggression in Ukraine. You must have temporary residency and you must have one or more family members with Canadian citizenship or permanent residency. It's important to note that Ukrainian refugees have also faced homelessness to the point where they've had to consider leaving the country. So... There is a federal component to what we're talking about. And it's different from asylum seekers coming from Roxham Road. It's different from Afghan refugees. And it is different from a lot of other experiences. And I think my complaint with this is we don't have a standard policy or Or we have more exceptions to the policy for refugees than we have similarities in these policies, it seems, across the board.
0: I think, you know, all government decisions actually are driven by politics. And I think international politics, geopolitics also play a role in how our immigration policies respond to global events. I want to draw the comparison, for example, with the Ukrainians. We also had a special program for the Sudanese earlier this year. I think that program started in May, to supposed to expedite the family reunification of Sudanese Canadians with loved ones affected by the civil war in Sudan. I just feel sometimes that our response is not to the same scale. For example, we had all this all hands on deck approach, you know, when it comes to Ukrainians, and you know, we just ban over backward, which is great. I think everyone at risk should deserve protection and support.
1: Absolutely. nobody, Nobody's saying otherwise here.
0: Yeah. But in terms of the scale of those response, like I, I do have my own questions, like why? And I think that's why I feel like geopolitics actually has a huge role to play, just so much at stake. And I think it's partially as also impacted by the global response, our allies, how their positions on the Russian war on Ukraine versus the global efforts to assist the Afghans and Syrians, right? I think during the Syrian crisis, I think Canada's response was unprecedented, right? Very unique among all the other allies how they responded to the Syrians because we did open the door when everyone else shutting the border against the Syrians. And with the Afghans, I think there was definitely, you know, some collaborative efforts with the US, our allies with NATO to assist those Afghans to flee the Taliban. And certainly, I think when it comes to Ukraine, it's very clear there's a joint effort by everyone to do whatever they can. I think internationally and domestically, there there are so many forces in play to drive those policies.
2: This episode is brought to you by Article. Summer is here. It is hot in this country, and it is so pleasant to just sit outdoors under a canopy of trees on, like, nice Furniture. Why just have the nice furniture inside? We have like really nice loungy stuff, like a, like a living room set outdoors. All of it from Article. They make exceptional stuff from sleek modern designs to timeless classics. Article's outdoor furniture is really well crafted. We bought this stuff last season and some of it I did not really winter proof all that well. You wouldn't know it. It has held up beautifully, super comfortable too. Article offers a convenient online shopping experience. You can effortlessly browse their curated selection. You don't need to make a day out of searching through crowded stores, trying to figure out what to get. You just order online and they ship right to your door. Listen, 50 bucks off with your first purchase of $100 or more. That's a great deal. To claim it, visit article.com slash Canada and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. Go have a look, article.com slash Canada Land. $50 off your first purchase of a hundred bucks or more.
1: All right, let's move on to duly noted. On this program, we duly note stories that maybe have been missed, maybe require another look, etc. So I believe you have a duly noted for us, Nicholas.
0: Yes, I actually have a story in today's paper about a new program, yet another new program introduced <laughs> by the immigration department. Is an open work permit issue for skilled migrant workers who are actually working in the U.S. and some of them at risk of losing their work authorization in the U.S. is supposed to be part of a strategy to lure skilled immigrants, especially the high-tech workers, to Canada. It's a very interesting program. It actually opened on Sunday, and all ten thousand spots were filled within forty-eight hours. And I think what is interesting is this is an insurance policies for those workers in the states who I think would obviously rather be working in the U.S., in the tech industry in the U.S., making a lot more money in the U.S., more job opportunities there than coming to Canada. Yet, you know, we have this program designed to lure them here, a group of people who may not end up staying here.
1: Duly noted. I'm going to switch to something that might seem a little bit more frivolous, but I will show you the deeper meaning. I swear, just stay with me. Okay. I today am going to talk about Pierre Poiliev's new look. So, Pierre Poiliev took a photo with Danielle Smith and a man with a green straight pride t-shirt. This is during Calgary Stampede, and the t-shirt says, thank a straight person today for your existence, straight pride. Now, I know all of you caught the homophobia. I'm not going to go over that part, but I just want to make sure that you know that I know that, that that is exactly the point. But I think there's something else going on. So, If you remember, Pierre Poiliev used to look kind of nerdy. He had glasses, he had his gelled hair. He wanted to present himself more as the intellectual. And now he seems to be presenting himself or trying to look more, quote unquote, cis male heterosexual masculinity type So basically, what Leanne DeLapp of the Toronto Star called it was a laid-back masculine, and I please I use that in quotations, and approachable. The new image is a clear effort to grow Poiliev's likability ratings for a broader electorate. And I would say that there is an underlying misogyny going on here. And it's a slap in the face to any woman. A voting age in this country, because what it assumes is that women are so empty-headed that we cannot approach politics seriously. Now, the conservatives started out when when Trudeau came onto the scene. The conservatives started out making fun of his physical appearance, basically saying that he's too pretty. And now they seem to have accepted some sort of defeat. And in order to raise their appeal with women, and they are sucking with women, they are trying to assert a kind of outward, quote unquote, masculine appearance. And I'm not saying I don't have a conclusion to this, except to say that there's a lot of misogyny going on. Because on the other hand, I also remember the days when Trudeau used to run around Parliament shirtless. And that picture with meeting some kid in Gatineau Hills, shirtless. So the liberals have basically capitalized on marketing Trudeau that way. If you think of the Vogue spread, et cetera, et cetera. But what the conservatives are doing, I think is a little bit more insidious.
0: Duly noted.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is mental health week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting-edge Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. At BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand.
1: We begin with breaking news on inflation in this country. The latest inflation numbers could come as a bit of relief to Canadians today. The annual inflation rate dipped below three percent last month, the lowest level in two years, a milestone in the Bank of Canada's efforts to fight raging price pressures. Nicholas. How's inflation hitting you?
0: Hard. (laughs) H-A-R-D, hard. I think just like everyone else, you go to the grocery stores, everything. Now, if you want to get some fresh produce, everything is much more expensive. The only blessing I have is I have my own home. I don't have to worry about mortgage rates. But my family also struggle, even hydro, right? You try to, okay, oh, I do hydro's awful. should I do it before 7 p.m. or let's wait after 7, right? I mean, yeah.
1: <sighs> now, as you know, inflation's been high, right? The Bank of Canada has a target rate of between 1 and 3%. We are now at 2.8%. So why are they raising prices? Do you have any thoughts?
0: You know what? I've seen a lot of reportings, you know, for example, about price gouging the grocery stores. How do they manage to make all this profits? while well, we are struggling and we keep seeing, you know, prices going up. And we have heard that, you know, the supply chain supposed to be more secure and stable now. So uh, I don't know, like I'm at a loss too, like everyone else.
1: Well, the Bank of Canada has no plans to lower their prime rate. They want to keep driving inflation down the effects of this are that the higher cost of borrowing may remain for a while longer. I have to say, I'm actually starting to become happy with how the Canadian media establishment is now digging into this issue, because mostly when I read about inflation, there is an institutional bias. In other words, They will just take what the Bank of Canada says.
0: They're not looking to kill the economy in order to get inflation back to 2%.
1: Or what a CIBC chief economist says on Bay Street. Economists had expected 3.0%,
2: 2.8% is the number.
1: And to me, this is now a human interest story. It is now affecting all of us. And I am actually glad that they are starting to dig into the why. And somebody else who dug into the why is Armin Yalnizian. She wrote about the Bank of Canada and really questioning whether that target should be between 1% and 3% still. The Bank of Canada seems to be very narrowly focused on this issue. And I'm wondering if part of the reason is housing. So while the core sort of annual inflation rate would have been 2% if mortgage costs had been excluded, mortgage interest costs were up more than 30% from June of last year, when the bank's key interest rate was 1.5 compared with the 4.75% for most of June 2023. With July's quarter percentage point rate hike, the central bank is now at 5%. So mortgage interest costs are up, but the housing market is projected to rise 8.5% this year alone. So I'm wondering about the correlation between those two things.
0: I think, you know, having a roof over our head is the basic very basic need for everyone. So I'm not surprised that trying to control the housing market looms big in the decision-making of the the Bank of Canada. But obviously, you know, I'm not an economist. I only know how I live my life and how my friends and relatives live their life. But I can say when you impose the higher interest rates, mortgage rates, yes, you'd make people to think twice before they buy a property. But at the same time, who are the people that who will be impacted? Maybe also not just, I don't think if you're wealthy, the interest rates may mean as much as for the mortgage rates, will mean as much as for someone, you know, working class person who want to buy a home, right? Absolutely. I think there's need for, you know, some sort of segregated studies in terms of which group is being impacted by these policies.
1: It's interesting because... Jim Stafford from The Future of Work has been talking about labor and labor conditions versus interest rates versus corporate profits. And what he says is that another component of production costs, profits, has grown much faster and further and hence is more culpable in explaining the inflation surge. So let's take housing out And let's talk about grocery prices, for example, that surged during the pandemic and are still what economists would call sticky. In other words, those prices haven't come down. And I would argue that a lack of, say, competition has allowed some industries to behave in monopolistic ways that allow them to set the price. And people are just going to pay it anyway. And that is also a problem for the same group of people that we're talking about. So those group of people are being squeezed on all sides. And so what I am afraid of is that even if the Bank of Canada is technically right, I just don't think that they have the buy-in from society that they think they do, or maybe they don't think they need it. I don't know, but it's not there. There is a division happening between the institutional frameworks and how they're affecting the most vulnerable of us.
0: I mean, my knowledge of economics, you know, is limited to my one one courses. And I don't know. Like I just feel even with some of the studies, research, reports and that we normally would come across as a journalist. Yes. You have all these controlled variables, you have all this theoretically how the world is supposed to run, but it doesn't necessarily work in the real world. So when we talk about all this prediction forecasts, like And surveys, sometimes, you know, public polls and stuff, like, I don't know, like, you know, even personally, you know, how much we can read into those. Because life is life. It's not a controlled environment that there, there there's so many, even different variables would interact differently and could lead to different outcomes, right? The only thing that's reliable, maybe is hindsight. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, it's hard. And I think we need maybe empirical research is more reliable, that you know, how do you do that in, in the real world?
1: Well, that's also backward looking, right? Yeah. In other words, it looks like we're up shit creek. That's it for Shortcuts this week. Thank you for joining me, Erica Eiffel. We are on Twitter at at Canada Land. You can email Jesse about it at jesse at canadaland.com tell jesse how much you enjoyed me guest hosting this episode yes he would love those emails you can find me at wicked Chick, w-i-c-k-d-c-h-i-q nicholas where can people find you
0: oh you can find me at n-k-e-u-n-g on twitter and I always look for uh, story ideas and story suggestions. So feel free to uh, DM me.
1: Open DMs?
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Woo! That's treacherous on Twitter these days. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CF. As in Frank, U, V as in Victor, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support Canada Land. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as you all know, we know what the state of journalism is like. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites, and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to CanadaLand.com forward slash join. You can listen ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On this past Monday's episode of Canada Land, host Jesse Brown and news editor Jonathan Goldsby offered a primer on Navigator, a company that has offered crisis communication services to clients like Gian Gameshi. Hockey Canada and Michelle Latimer. The company has been a common threat running through many of the biggest Canadian news stories of the past 15 years. Listen back, the Canada Land Guide to Navigator in your podcast app. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Thank you.